Students, welcome to Lecture 4, Canto 2 in the Art of the Inferno. Before we get into talking about Canto 2, let's talk a little bit about Canto 1 and some of the symbols we saw and some of the complicated symbolism that we had to work through. First, recall this. There are two, there are four ways to read Dante. Uh, according to Con his letter to Con Grande della Scala, his friend, when he was writing the Paradiso, or which he wrote to his friend, so that his friend could interpret the Paradiso accurately while he was writing the Paradiso between 1308 and 1321. Remember, 1308 is when he started writing the Inferno particularly. Well, he said there are four ways to interpret his poem. We're only going to talk about two today, or we only took about, talked about two yesterday. We talked about the literal way to interpret his poem. That's just what's happening. And then the allegorical. What does what's happening actually mean? It's like the difference between the paper the dollar is written on and the fact that a dollar is worth a dollar. Where does that come from? Its physical substance or how it is used amongst symbolic creatures called humans? Obviously, the answer is the second one. In any case, I very quickly just want to mention something. We started in a dark wood. We thought that that was a symbol for Dante being in a dark place. He was going up a mountain. One of us very intelligently, accurately identified that mountain might be purgatory, even though the geography is a little bit funky, I would say. On that mountain, we ran into three beasts. Those three beasts were a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. Now, this is where we got very allegorical. We said that scholastic opinion suggests that that leopard, lion, and she-wolf, or those leopards, or no, that leopard, lion, and she-wolf, represented types of sin that help to order and arrange Dante's Inferno. Those types of sin were incontinence, which we find in the first five circles, so-called upper hell, the not-as-bad hell, uh, essentially. Brutishness, which is where we find the violent people in circle seven, that's split into three. And then malice, which we said is the misuse of the rational intellect which are circles 8 and 9, fraud and treason, or treachery, respectively. Now, these three types of sin are based on the idea that there is a soul and that it can be corrupted. Well, you then say, whose model of the soul is Dante using? Aristotle, Plato, Aquinas, all sorts of models of the soul. And I say, well, it, awfully, it looks awfully like Plato's. Now, remember Aristotle's, he has a vegetative soul at the bottom, which makes you grow and eat. He has a locomotive soul, which is what animals have. That's what they move. And then he's got a, an intelligent soul or a rational soul. That doesn't seem to be what Dante is playing with here. He seems to accept Plato's model, which has an appetitive soul, which is where one's base desires come from for food, for human company, uh, especially physical human company. Uh, that produce, This produces anger in people, your desires for uh, wealth or to spend. Just anything that you could do that, say, a a child would have a desire to do is essentially what your appetites are responsible for. Now, remember the second part. And, and when the appetite is corrupted, that makes one incontinent. That would put one in circles one through five, really two through five, in the inferno. I have one through five there, but remember one's a little bit funky. But I'm fine that if on the quiz tomorrow you write one through five. Now, the spirited soul, when it's corrupted, one becomes violent, one will be in the seventh circle. The rational soul, when it becomes corrupted, one becomes malicious, one would be in the eighth or ninth circle. And so, remember alongside that, then the appetite's corruption would be represented by the leopard, the spirit by the lion, 
And then the rational by which animal? The she-wolf. And so the she-wolf, yes? What about the sixth circle? The sixth circle. Great question. Where is the sixth circle up here? Sixth circle is heresy. It does not fall within any of these categorical. It does not fall within this category. And so we're going to have to think about it when we get there. And in fact, very cleverly, the sixth circle is right on the edge of upper and lower health. It's right on the border. It, like limbo, is itself a limbic or liminal place. And so... The Greek word hieresis, from which heresy comes for, means making a choice. And the idea behind heresy is that one chooses to believe differently from those who believe orthodoxy. We'll have to talk about why that's an issue when we get there. We'll get there at the end of next week. So, excellent question. Way to notice that six is not included here. So, if I ask you about six, know that a trick is coming. All right. Good, 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 good. So, back to the narrative itself. Dante finds himself confront, confronted with this terrifying, ferocious she-wolf. He cannot get by this she-wolf. What happens? Deus Ex Machina. Virgil shows up. But Virgil showing up is a little bit odd because Dante is very much a living human, and Virgil is very much a zombie from the dead. Kind of scary. Do you trust him? And, well, if he's from the Roman times, before the Christian times, then he probably came not from heaven, but rather from hell. And if he is a Zombie from hell, who has come up to Dante, perhaps he wants to take him down there with him. Perhaps he is not to be trusted. Well, Dante is hesitant about this sort of thing at first. Let me make sure I say the right thing. Okay, good. Right. Yes, okay. A couple things about Virgil. Make sure we write this. This is where we're starting for today. Virgil has come from Limbo. Limbo is the first circle in hell. It is where the unbaptized children and the noble pagans live. The noble pagans stay within a part of Limbo called the Noble Castle, which itself looks very much like the Garden of Eden, but without the happiness aspect. And it does seem to parallel, we will see the Garden of Eden, by the way, at the top of Purgatory. It's called Terrestrial Paradise. We'll then see Celestial Paradise, too. Uh, in fact, we'll see many gardens. We'll see sort of a garden at the top of Paradise, Heaven, We'll see a garden at the top of the mountain of Purgatory, and we get to see a sort of garden here in Limbo. In any case, when Virgil shows up to Dante, he understands that this is a bit of an oddity in uh, Dante's life. He hasn't had a chance to see any dead Roman poets lately, um, unless he was reading them, which perhaps he was. So Dante says, or Virgil says, the magic word. He says, I was sent by Beatrice. Bang. Dante hasn't heard that name in years. Remember, Beatrice died in 1290. This poem takes place in 1300. She's been dead for 10 years. If Virgil is alive, or no, excuse me, I shouldn't quite put it so strongly. If Virgil still exists, though dead, and has a manifest shape, what might, who might also Dante be able to see? Beatrice. Beatrice again, his muse. And imagine how excited that might make him. And what's interesting is, what is it that we were saying yesterday Dante had lost? He was himself lost in the dark wood, not having a goal, not having something to strive towards. What is it that we said one loses access to when one no longer has a mountain to climb? Yes. Hope. Well, imagine the moment you hear that the person you love who has inspired your greatest poetry exists in some way, and you might be able to see them, what jumps into your heart? 
Hope? Hope for what? Hope to finally see them again. And I want you to think about that sort of hope. Because that is perhaps the most powerful hope a human can feel. And it is also perhaps one of the saddest hopes a human can feel. Someone you really love dies. What is it that you wish more than anything? Of course. To see them again, no matter what. What would I have to do to see them again? This is a this is a trope that goes throughout all human civilization. In fact, last year you probably heard the story of Orpheus from the Greek mythology. Do you all recall Orpheus? Well, his story is sad. He was a son of Apollo and the Muses, so he should have been a god, but he was actually immortal. He married a woman named Eurydice, or Eurydice. On their wedding night, at their party, while they were celebrating, a snake slithered in, bit her on the foot, and she died. On their wedding day, Orpheus was an incredible musician. In fact, he was known for being so good that he could charm the rocks and charm animals. And so he goes down with his lyre, which is a harp that you hold in your hand, and the cathara is a seven-string uh, seven version of that. He went down to the underworld, and he charmed Persephone, queen of the dead, as well as Hades. And they gave him his wife back, Eurydice, with one condition. You may not look upon her until you are out of the underworld. And so he walks all the way up, and there's so many pictures and art of this, and they're so sad. And he walks out, and when he turns around, she's still there. She gets sucked back down into the underworld, never for him to see her again. What does that story mean? False hope. Interesting. Where was it that Eurydice was? that she can never get away from. There's a literal level, but again, there's an allegorical level as well. You can't leave home. You can't leave the underworld, because you're obviously what? Dead. Dead, and you can't be alive again. That's true. Very true. Good. Yes. You can never escape death. I would say also this. Where is the only place that a person continues to exist after they die? In the mind of the people who knew them. Imagine that the underworld, then, is Orpheus's mind. Where will Eurydice never escape from back into the world? That's right. And that is almost certainly what that myth means. And do you see how sad that is, but also how universal that is? Because who doesn't want someone back after they're dead who they loved? None of us. I mean, or all of us, rather. Or, no, none of us don't want that. Double negative. We all want that, is what I mean to say. And so, Dante here has, a, has this opportunity to see his Eurydice. Yeah, I don't think he thinks that he's going to be taking her back. But just the idea that he gets to see her again is powerful enough. Do you, do you see that? Do you see how motivating that is? Good. Good. Good, 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 good. Okay, I'm going to switch to this slide, and then I'm going to say some additional things. So... Apparently, while, Di while Dante was out of hope, out of luck, lost in this dark wood, he was being noticed by some pretty big-time names. Now, in the medieval Catholic faith, the big-time, most important woman who exists is Mary, mother of Jesus. In fact, she is called the Regina Coeli. That means Queen of Heaven, the same designation that Juno, or Hera, was given amongst the Olympians. Whoa! That's pretty high up there. The other major woman that you'll need to know, she's not generally uh, held in as high esteem as Eve, 
evil entered the world through her. And you might think that that's sort of a prejudice against girls sort of story. But the Greek story about how women entered the world is even worse, by the way. You all probably know the story of Pandora. Literally, the story is that women entered the world to curse the Greek men. And so the uh, Judeo-Christian version is, uh, even though still, uh, we think, not exactly balanced, a little bit better than what the Greeks and the Romans believed. All that said, Virgin Mary, Queen of Heaven, big-time figure for Dante. She sees Dante in Canto II, in this dark place. She's not going to... She's not going to deal with him directly. She's got things to do, apparently. She calls to her St. Lucy. St. Lucy is also called St. Lucia in the Italian. St. Lucia is then sent down to Beatrice and told, This man who loves you, whom you claim to love, who you are the muse of, is having a very difficult time. He needs some help. You need to help him. Beatrice says, Why? Oh, my goodness, she's sitting with Rachel. Anybody know who Rachel is from the Old Testament? She's a wife of somebody pretty famous. Yes? Oh, I just have a question. Yes? Um, She's the wife of Jacob, by the way. One of the wives of Jacob. So Jesus knew who Dante married? Yes, supposedly. In this case. Dante's writing the story. Cause, oh, because I thought, like, Dante... They only um, met twice in their life, so, like, they didn't know each other very well. Oh. It's sort of one of those things where he looked at her from afar. So she knew, like, of him? Yes, potentially so. They weren't good friends. They weren't, like, great friends. They weren't great... They, they never had a real relationship with Good, 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 good. So Mary sees Dante, calls St. Lucy to her, sends St. Lucy down to Beatrice. Beatrice then kicks into gear. She goes down to hell herself. Angels slash people in heaven do not like going to hell. I say this with good reason. We will see an angel go down to the inferno to deal with the fallen angels. He will be none too happy to be there. In fact, uh, I often show a picture of Dante at this point. Look at Dante. Pretty severe looking guy. Sometimes people actually make faces at this book when I show it to them. He's looking, you know, pretty scornful of things. In fact, one of my friends uh, very famously said that when he saw the Trinity, he probably looked at it like this, which I thought was pretty funny. That's pretty funny. That's like essentially you're, you see a divine being, still look at it with an angry face. Sort of funny. Maybe a kid would do that sort of thing. In any case, angels do not like going down to hell, no matter which part of it, because, well, you know, it's not the nicest place down there. And it also smells really bad where Dante will be. It does smell really bad. It, it's described as smelling very bad, which is interesting. In any case, Beatrice then talks to Virgil. She says, a man who is renowned for wisdom, who has read you, who loves you as well, needs help. Go help him. And so Virgil comes up and does this. And so he tells this to Dante, as I was saying. And Dante responds, how generous she was to give her assistance. How courteous you were to obey her so quickly when she proffered her help and spoke the truth. Now, go. A single will fills us both. You are my guide, my master, and my lord. Notice that in triplicate right there. You are my guide, my master, and my lord. He calls Virgil three things in one line. Do you think that is intentional? Clearly that is intentional. Very good. So I spoke to him. When he stirred from where he was, I entered upon the deep and thorny way. Very good. All right, and that brings us to the end of Canto Two. Now, I want to talk about a couple epic conventions after I answer this question. Yes? This, um, Beatrice goes to the first circle, right? Because that's where Virgil is? Yes, he is in Limbo. Limbo is circle one. Okay. It is the only circle that has a name. Though in circle nine, the sub-circles will also have names, and we'll talk about those when we get there. Okay, I want to talk about a couple epic conventions here. First one I want to talk about 
is the invocation of the muse. I need you to write down all of these. Because what I need you to know by tomorrow are at least the invocations to the four epics that we know very well. Three of which we know very well, one of which we're getting to know. First off, you need to know about Dante's invocation of the muse. First, notice very cleverly where it comes from. Inferno 2.79. I would probably imagine that I would see it where instead of 2.79. How about 1.79? Because let's look at these other epics. Homer's Iliad. Book 1, line 1. Seeing goddess the anger of Peleus' son Achilles. Homer's Odyssey. Book 1, lines 1 and 2. Tell me, Muse, of the man of many ways who was driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Epic 3. Virgil's Aeneid. Line 1 and line either 12 or 13. I seek of arms and of a man. Tell me the reason, Muse. Which book or chapter do all of these invocations come from? The first one. So, let's look at Dante's again. It's num it comes in the second one. Who thinks they know I? Yes? Is the first one That's perfect. Very good. All over it today. Yes, precisely right. Because the first canto is an introductory canto. The second canto is the real beginning. Very good, very good. And so that is the answer. Second question. Why does Dante, a Catholic Christian, middle, medieval person, invoke a Greco-Roman goddess, a muse, rather than an angel, or a saint, or God himself? Yes? It is because he, an angel you're more familiar with, but he was unfamiliar kind of with uh, Beatrice. Interesting, interesting thought. One might be more familiar with an angel, and he was less familiar with this idea. Interesting. Do we have other ideas? This one is a little more straightforward. In order for Dante to indicate to us that he is writing an epic poem, he has to show that he is writing in the form of an epic poem. And so, there are a few conventions of epic poems that one must honor. A, they're always set to a very particular... Uh, uh, rhyme scheme, uh, or meter, dactylic hexameter is usually what the meter is for, uh, that is the meter of both the Iliad and the Odyssey, and also the Aeneid, which is adapted from ancient Greek to uh, the Latin language, which was pretty, pretty difficult, good job, Virgil. But another important thing is that epics always have an invocation of the muse. So even though it would be the case that Dante wouldn't believe in the muses, per se, in order for him to indicate that we are to judge him as an epic poet, just like Virgil, just like Homer, he needs to make his epic be an epic by including these features. And so, he is explicitly telling us with this invocation that A, he is writing an epic, and that B, he wants to be judged alongside Virgil and Homer. Which means he is trying to do the greatest thing a poet can possibly do. He is setting his sights as high as possible. And you might even want to think about his theme during the course of this. Because what is his theme during the course of the Divine Comedy? What the Christian afterlife looks like? Is that a small idea to tackle or a large idea to tackle? Large, maybe the biggest one possible. What happens after you die? And where do you go? Is that a small or a big question? It's, the biggest, it's one of the biggest questions possible. It's a question that every mortal person, all of us, ask at some point. Because we're all confronted with what at some point? Our own deaths, yes, I know, terrible, and yet true. 
Uh, something I also just want you to notice is just how smart Vir Virgil is right there. You see that he includes elements from the Iliad and the Odyssey in his invocation. The Iliad sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' the son. And obviously the Iliad is about armor, arms, and weapons because it's about war. Notice in Virgil's Aeneid, I sing, that throwback to uh, the Iliad right there, of arms, that means of a war. That's a reference to the Iliad and its... Um, and it, its invocation. And then I sing of a man. Well, look at Homer's Odyssey. Tell me, Muse, of the man. There's an Odysseic piece. And then look at line 13. Tell me the reason, Muse. And then we see Homer's Odyssey. Tell me, Muse. And also, uh, tell me the reason. What sort of man is Odysseus? He's a reasonable man. He's a man who looks for reasons. The idea. Very, very clever. Very, very clever. All right. I just wanted you to see that. I just wanted you to see that. Um, second thing I'll mention, I'm just going to mention this very quickly is that there's an old mythologist from the 20th century named Joseph Campbell. He wrote a very famous and influential book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he claims that every hero goes through a cycle of events called the monomyth. One of the parts in an early hero saga is the refusal of the call. It means the refusal of the call of adventure. I just want to illustrate for you that in every epic we've read, we either have seen one within the epic, or a refusal surrounding it. The Iliad. The Iliad focuses on Achilles. Recall two facts about him. One, before the Iliad ever started, before the Trojan War ever started, he, under the advisement of his mom, knowing that he would die at Troy, dresses a girl in order to hide from his fate. He refused the call. Also recall from the Iliad itself. He refused to fight in order to live up to his fate. Does he refuse the call? Yes, Odysseus. Before going to Troy, acted like a crazy guy, a loony, in order not to ever go to Troy because he had heard a prophecy that 20 years after he goes there, he will come back in a worse state than he left it for there. Which is probably true of most people 20 years in the future, unless they're kids. He refuses the call. And in fact, at the beginning of the Odyssey, he seems to have sort of forgotten his homecoming because he's stuck on Calypso's island. Will he come back to reality? And then, of course, in the Aeneid, Aeneas is asked, or told explicitly by Hector in book two, by Hector's ghost, it's looking pretty grisly, get out of Troy, you must leave the Trojans. And he has immediately arms and goes out to fight and die. And then eventually it is. Do all these heroes refuse the call to adventure at some point? Yes, Dante almost does that here, but not really. Okay, what is the last thing I need to show you? I want to show you some art very, very quickly. There are just a couple things I want you to notice from here. Gustav Ray, alongside William Blake, is probably the most famous artist to have represented Dante. I'll show you other artists as we go through from the 15th century, two from the 15th century, one from the 16th century, I believe. But this is the guy I need you to see here because I'm going to show you the first five canto, or excuse me, the first five circles, the first ten cantos or so that we're going to go over this upcoming week. All right. I'm going to go sort of quickly through here. Notice the dark scheme. Um, something you'll notice when you read the Inferno is that the language of color is the language of absence. You don't get much color. Dark, gloomy, undefined, unless there's talk about fire. So you hear about fire and gloom. Very, very infernal. Here you see the line. Uh, what I need you to know about Doré here is know the theme. Notice this darkness that is included. Know that it is drawing. Know that it's charcoal. Mostly know what his name is, Gustav de Ray. Notice that accent acute on the back. And notice which century that he wrote in. And if I show you a picture, I won't show you anything crazy, and I ask you who's in it. Most of the time, you'll notice you see Dante, 
Most of the time, you'll notice you see Virgil. Not always, but okay. Very quickly, I'm going to go through a few of these drawings. So we see here, oh, I'll, I'll do it in a second then. Okay, I just want to show you 